All right, before uh, we open the word together, let me just um, put in a word for um, the scripture journals. Um, a lot of you picked these up back when we um, started Isaiah back in the spring. Um, but if you didn't, if you're new to the church, one of the things we try to do when we do book studies, uh, if these are available, ESV puts out what's called a scripture journal, and it, it's real simple. It's the, the text of the scripture and then a blank page for note-taking. Um, people find it super helpful for sermon notes, devotional time, whatever uh, might be a benefit to you, but it's, it's kind of like having your own sort of devotional commentary as you're going through the book of Isaiah. We bought some more. There's some copies back there. We ask for a $6 donation if you're able to. That just covers our cost, um, but they're available at the Welcome Center. Where do you, where do you turn for comfort when, when things are turned upside down, when your, your world is shaken in some way? Where do you look for comfort? There are all sorts of the obvious answers, if you will, to that question. The, the people who try to numb themselves with alcohol or, or drugs, some shop, some binge food or movies, some turn to ungodly images on their phones, others spend hours on TikTok looking at those videos of adorable dogs and cats and panda bears to try to find comfort. I mean, however adorable cats can actually be, but <laughs> sorry, cat lovers. We have one at home and it does not like me, so I have a little chip on my shoulder. Some people seek comfort in fixing. Things go wrong, Chaos strikes, and they immediately move into the mode of, I, I've got to re repair this. I've got to bring it under control. I've got to do everything that I can. Where do you turn for comfort? It's an important question because it, it reveals so much about our hearts and, and what we desire and what we cling to during times of difficulty, where, where we turn in those moments. Do I really believe when Scripture says that he is the God of all comfort? Or am I just sort of acknowledging that and, and going about my own way to find comfort? If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 40, we're picking up there this morning in Isaiah 40, and I just want to read verse 1 because it begins very simply with a repeated command from God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's imperative verb, so this is, this is a command. It's a plural verb, in fact, so it's, it's, it's said to multiple people all at once. Comfort my people. It's not immediately clear who is being commanded to do this. We can make some presumptions about it being the, the remnant of people who have obeyed God. We'll, we'll get a, a, at least one part of the answer. We get down to verse 6. But, but what is clear is that God is directing that his people be given comfort, that something be spoken to them that would bring them some kind of consolation. This morning, we're going to go verses 1 through 11 and just look at what God's comfort looks like. This is a, an introductory sort of section. Isaiah 40 through 55 is really one extended poem, and, and this is sort of the prologue, if you will. Uh, and, and, and so I'll mention this, and Pastor Stewart will mention it next week when he goes on through chapter 40, that, that you're going to see themes as in Hebrew poetry, that sort of repeat themselves, sort of uh, are, are circular in some sense. He'll come around and then he'll come back around to them again. And so here, ultimately, there is, there's comfort that he wants for his people. Now, we live in very different circumstances than the people he was speaking to 3,000 years ago. They were going through 
some very real trauma at that point, and, and, and we'll look at that in just a second. But, but what can we learn about how God comforts his people? What does God say? What are the sort of bedrock truths that bring comfort? Uh, for us to understand Isaiah 40, we need to jump back a little bit in terms of history as to what led into this. We finished up in chapter 39 back in May, and the move... From chapter 39 to chapter 40 is significant. I said to you back then when we, we took a break, that, that's where most theologians, most commentators and teachers agree. That's sort of the, the major break point in Isaiah is between 39 and 40. Probably the next one will be 55, will be the end of that section. But this, this transition, as one commentator put it, when one turns from the 39th to the 40th chapter, it is as though he steps out of the darkness of judgment into the light of salvation. As we've Proceeded through chapters 1 through 39, there were glimmers of light and hope. There were moments that you you saw Isaiah pointing forward and saying, there is more, this is not the end of the story. But predominantly, that first section of the book is one of judgment. It is one of warning the people of Judah that if they continue down this path, God will judge them for their rebellion. And Isaiah is a prophet who's largely speaking to the people of Judah. At at the point when Isaiah comes on the scene, the Jewish people have been divided up into two nations now for about 200 years at this point. There is Israel to the north, which has been governed by all evil kings. Ever since the, the split at Rehoboam, there is just this constant leading away into idolatry. And so Israel has just been moving further and further from the Lord. Judah to the south, to whom Isaiah is speaking, has sort of yo-yoed back and forth. The influence of the ruler has a big effect on where the nation and the people are at that point. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. It's the place where the temple is. It's sort of the the focal point. And, And Isaiah is there in Jerusalem speaking to kings in particular, and to the people. But, but his ministry, he characterizes it right in verse 1 of the book, and he says that it, he preached, he ministered during the reign of four kings of Judah. That's sort of the, the time marker for us, if you will, for the book. Roughly 50 to 60 years. Um, we could say 740-ish B.C. to 680-ish B.C., so roughly during that period. Four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Isaiah spent much of that time speaking to Judah about the reality of Assyria. Assyria is the the superpower of the day. It is the great nation that is sending its army out and conquering other nations and, and, and taking their people as captives and building its own strength. And so much of what we saw in the front end of Isaiah is the prophet going to king saying, Don't trust in your meager military to defend you. Don't form alliances with ungodly countries. Don't panic. God is the one you must trust. Yahweh is the one that you must rest in. And if you will trust him, he will be your strength and your shield. That was Isaiah's message to Judah. It's important to remember that during this time, as he's speaking to those kings, Israel, the kingdom to the north, is actually conquered by the Assyrians. That Assyrian army comes and it lays siege in Israel and it begins to deport people to the point that in 722 BC, Israel finishes the deportation of the people of Israel. And and, and what the Assyrians did is they took people from one nation and they scattered them in another and they mixed everything up so that languages and cultures would be so different they couldn't band together and defend themselves. 
And so if you're in Judah, you're watching this. You're seeing what's happening to your ethnic brethren. And, and the reality is we know that once Assyria accomplished that in 722 BC, there really is no longer that nation of Israel, at least not intact anymore. By the time we come to it in the, the New Testament, it is now Galilee and Samaria. It is the region in which Jesus began his ministry, and then it is that region in between that is largely an ethnic mix of people that had ended up there because of the Assyrians. So there's mixed race Jews and Gentiles in Samaria. Judah is seeing this. Judah and its kings are watching, and they are they are wavering in their obedience to God and their trust in God and their trust in self and their desire to protect their nation. And so Isaiah began to speak first during the reign of King Uzziah. Uzziah was on the throne for 52 years, so um, Isaiah is coming later in his reign. Scripture, Second Chronicles, says this about Uzziah. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Key words there are as long as. God enabled Uzziah to, to build up military strength, to go out and defeat some other enemy nations, to become prosperous from the spoils of warfare, and, and to build up Judah. And then 2 Chronicles 26.16 says, When Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. That's the, the venue into which Isaiah is thrust to preach. It is a nation that has largely been made strong by virtue of God's blessing on them, and they have now become arrogant. They've now come to the place under their king where they've assumed that we've done this, we're strong, we don't need anyone, and, and that pride then ultimately befalls Uzziah and, and the people. Jotham follows him on the throne. Jotham is considered a good king, somewhat inconsequential king in terms of the biblical record, not a, a whole lot there, but then comes Ahaz. And, and we saw Ahaz several times in the beginning of Isaiah. Ahaz is a king who does evil. Uh, we're introduced to him in chapter 7 as Isaiah is coming to him to say, trust God, and Ahaz is doing everything but trust God. Ahaz is trying to build up his own fortifications, make sure his military strength is good. He's working on alliances with other nations. He's doing everything he can to, to protect apart from trusting in the Lord for protection. Ahaz relies on money, resources, whatever's at hand. The last king who comes along then is Hezekiah. We met him in chapter 36. And Israel by this time has long since been defeated. So as Hezekiah is king, they already know what the Assyrians have done to Israel. They've seen it. They, they know what's happened to the land. It is now roughly 705 BC, and Hezekiah is on the throne, and here come the Assyrians again, some 15, 20 years later from when they first came after the people of Israel. And they come down the Mediterranean coast, and they begin to move in east, and they are headed toward Judah and ultimately toward Jerusalem, and they are intent on crushing the nation of Judah. And so in Isaiah 36, um, Assyria, the, the king sends a messenger to Jerusalem to stand outside the city gates and to call to the people and say, your God will lose too. We have defeated all of these other nations and cities. They all said that their God was great, just like you're saying now, and they were all defeated. So don't stop, just stop trusting in your God and surrender. That was the message in Isaiah 36. The next chapter is this marvelous story of Hezekiah 
trusting God, repenting of sin for himself and for his nation, and praying and saying, Lord, I want you to be glorified in this. I want people to see your glory. And God does the incredible, miraculous work of delivering Jerusalem. Isaiah 37, verses 36 and 37 say, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. That is the story of a conquering king who has never been stopped who is not defeated by an army, he is defeated solely by the supernatural work of God, and he turns around and he heads home. And it is a demonstration of the power of God. If Hezekiah's story had ended there, the temptation for the Jewish people would have been to think, Hezekiah might be this deliverer. This one who was hinted at at times back in the early chapters of Isaiah, this one who was coming, who would bring light, who would bring rescue. And Hezekiah, in his obedience to God, maybe he is that one. And that would be fine if that's where the story ended, but there's chapter 39. And Hezekiah, in the latter years of his life, Assyria is somewhat on the decline. Babylon is now beginning to gain strength. And Babylon sends envoys over to Hezekiah. Because if you're Babylon, you're thinking, there's the one nation that stood up to Assyria and that was somehow defeated. They've got to have something special. So let's go over there and see what we can learn about them and visit with their king. And chapter 39 describes this awful scene where these envoys come. Hezekiah does not pray, does not seek wisdom from God. He simply is going to make this a proud moment of you're here to see my kingdom, huh? And it says in 39, he opened the treasury, he opened the armory, he showed him the storehouses. Hezekiah said, take a look around, guys. Now, now listen, Judah at this point is nothing compared to what Babylon was, and, and Hezekiah is doing everything he can to say, see, I, I'm pretty good. This, this is quite a work that I've done here. And there's nothing in that section about glorifying God. This, this one who so humbly prayed for the glory of God now becomes arrogant And so that's when we end Isaiah 39 with the prophet being sent to Hezekiah with this ominous word. Isaiah 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear, listen to the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah, as if to make things worse at this point, said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Proud unfaithful to the Lord, instead of glorifying God in this moment and saying to the Babylonians that we stand because it's our God, our God does this all and he's given us this all. He fails in this moment and Isaiah comes and says, you know how you showed all this stuff to the Babylonians? Great, now they know where it is because they're coming for it. They will come and they will take all of it. And in fact, they will take descendants of yours who will be servants of the king of Babylon. Because of the way you've acted here, there will be judgment that falls from the Babylonians. And Hezekiah foolishly responds, well, 
that's not the worst. At least I'm not being dragged off to Babylon. That's essentially what that last line is, which is essentially, well, at least it'll happen after I'm gone. Peace and security in, in my life. So that's the one who may have looked like the deliverer ultimately becomes this, this sad, tragic story at the end of Isaiah 39, and we are sort of back in darkness now with the prospect that Babylon is coming. When that happens, when they do, Isaiah will be gone too. It, it will be about 100 years from the time Isaiah speaks this, maybe a little bit less than 100, that, that Babylon will come in and first lay siege to Jerusalem, and that will drag on for a number of years. But ultimately, when the Babylonians are, are done in 586 BC, Jerusalem will be done. It will be burned, the, the, the palace will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed. Those who haven't been killed by the Babylonians will be dragged off to captivity, not the least of which will be descendants of Hezekiah. The, the king will see his own sons put to death by the Babylonians before his eyes are put out. You can read it all at the end of Second Chronicles, and he is, he is dragged away into captivity. So that's why when you move from 39 to 40, we are moving from darkness we are moving from the prospect of Judah being taken into captivity. If we have history to look at, we're looking at Israel and being scattered by the Assyrians and thinking all is now lost for God's people. And so we transition into chapter 40. And Isaiah begins to declare about what is to come, to begin to give prophecies about what lies ahead after the exile. Then what? What will happen after they are taken into captivity? The people of Judah saw Israel's demise. They had every expectation that that's the path now they would follow if Isaiah was true. They had mocked Yahweh. They had adopted idols. And if God was bringing this punishment through Babylon, then the reality they would have assumed is it's hopeless. Why would God do anything other if this is what God has vowed, and God is holy, and God keeps his word, and this is what happens, and Babylon comes, then, then why would God ever rescue us again? Why, why would he ever deliver us? In fact, as we'll see, they even question, could Yahweh deliver us? I mean, even if he, even if he changed his mind and decided he want to, Listen, he's already been defeated by the Babylonians, and so that makes us think that maybe the Babylonians have superior gods to Yahweh, and, and there's all these just this hopeless sort of doubt at this point of what would God do? How could he deliver us? So, so let me just ask you this for a moment. In your most dire of circumstances, have you ever questioned God's promises? Have you ever taken the things that you, you know what scripture says, I am, I'm always with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm working all things together for good. Have you ever in those moments thought, yeah, right. I, I, I don't see that here. I, I, I don't see deliverance here. I don't know if God wants to or not. Maybe that, that this, this is punishment. Look, the Babylonians, they suffer punishment. So maybe this is just, he's just punishing me. And this, there's nothing to hope for. And so when Isaiah 40 begins, and God says, comfort, comfort my people, and he's commanding, it's almost strange into that environment that God would say, I am coming to speak comfort to people who have lost everything, who are in captivity, and who are fairly certain at this point that they've been left there, and, and, and that will be the end. 
One writer put it this way about chapter 40. Isaiah's new message is for people whose whole world has been shattered. And for people like that, cheap comfort is not only a waste of time, it is cruel. Comfort that is not grounded in reality is no comfort at all. We've all done the cheap comfort. Everything will be fine. It'll all work out. You'll be okay. And we say that because we, we're, we're fishing for words at that moment. We, have, we, we, don't, we don't control this moment, much less today or tomorrow, or, or, or can say to you, everything will be fine. And so it, it can't be that when he says comfort. So what truths truly bring comfort? What's the bedrock here, the foundation? So I'm going to give you four things as we go through verses 1 through 11 this morning. Just starting in verse 2 here. Let's read verse 2 a moment. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. All right, we started with a command to comfort. Now it's a command again, speak tenderly. Um, some of your translations have a footnote next to speak tenderly. That's very helpful. Uh, I don't, uh, my ESV doesn't have it, but, but they say that it's speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Not just speak tenderly to Jerusalem, speak to the heart of. And you and I can immediately get the sense for what that means. It's to speak with affection. It's to speak with love. It is to speak with compassion to that person. You speak to the heart of. You're, you're speaking in, in sort of generous, caring tones. And then he he goes, not only speak to, but then he says, cry to her, proclaim, announce in love. Three things. Her warfare is over. Her sin is pardoned. And then there's been double now for all of her sin, and we'll get to that in a moment. The word warfare is, is an accurate, literal translation of the Hebrew word, but it could also mean the idea of hardship, hard service, or even forced labor. It's the idea that her, her time, that, that purposeful time set for her to experience this kind of hard labor, that time of duress, is over. The Babylonian captivity is not a sadistic act of God. It is the just punishment that he had repeatedly warned them. If you continue to defy me and rebel against me, you can expect this, and their exile is God's punishment. But Isaiah is now bringing word, the warfare the time of duress, the, the hard season is over. How so? How can that be, Isaiah? Because, he says, her iniquity is pardoned. Her sin is forgiven. Again, humanly, we want to say that it's over because Israel, Judah got strong, because they finally, somebody else defeated the Babylonians, some other army came, something else happened to fix it on an earthly basis. And he says, no. No, the, the time of duress is over. Your, your iniquity has been pardoned. It's your sin and punishment for your sin, a satisfaction for your sin that had to happen. There is on one level God's satisfaction with his own punishment, his own just punishment for the, the, the people of Judah. That, that There is, in that sense, the time is up and the punishment has been met. 
But I said to you before, we need to remember Isaiah 40 is the beginning of an extended poem that goes on through Isaiah 55. And so there's more about this pardoning of iniquity in the course of this poem that helps to fill it in and explain how sin is fully pardoned. Because think of the the punishment of the Babylonian captivity kind of like you think about the priests giving the sacrifices in the Old Testament. In the sense that they are showing that there is sin and there is a God who is to be appeased in some way and this sacrifice is meant to display that he needs something to appease his wrath against sin, these sacrifices don't fully do that. They are not the perfect sacrifice, but they portray, they picture one who is. This captivity, this punishment is necessary. It's something that you must experience, but it doesn't actually, it's not like penance sort of thing, right? Where it just sort of gets rid of all your sins because you spent so many years in in Babylon. No, no. One of the themes you're going to see throughout this poem is the servant who is coming. And full redemption will come through this servant. If we go toward the end of the poem to Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He, single, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There it is. There's why he can say, the time of hardship is over. Your iniquity has been pardoned because there is forgiveness of sin. We actually don't even have to go all the way to chapter 53. Back in chapter 43, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The first reality God declares to be true to bring comfort to his people is there is no more judgment for sin. That For we who are are trusting in the Savior, for we who are striving after the Lord and and, and love the Lord, our our sin was judged in Christ. He died on the cross in our place. And so he is now setting forth for them, iniquity is pardoned. There There is salvation. There is end of duress because this God is a saving and forgiving God. If there was any suspicion at this point that God had forsaken his people for good when he delivered them to Babylon, that is struck down. Andrew Davis puts it this way. He says, God yearns that his crushed people, humbled and broken under his judgments, will see that atonement for their sins is God's final purpose. So God tells Isaiah, speak tenderly to Jerusalem to assure her that her warfare is over and she has received ample atonement from the Lord for all her sins. Price has been paid. There is is end to the hardship because iniquity has been pardoned. That double portion at the end of verse 40, interpreted two different ways. I'll tell you the way that I don't think it is, but there's good and thoughtful commentators who would argue this, that this is speaking of the punishment, the depth of Judah's punishment, double sort of symbolic to speak of how much the people of Judah have gone through in terms of their exile in Babylon. I'm not sure that I go that direction because I don't find that to be comfort. Speak tenderly. You've been punished enough. I think... I think what Isaiah is saying is, you have received far more 
than, than what your sins deserve. This is mercy, I think, is what Isaiah is saying. That's what's speaking tender and comfort at this point. You, you Judah, you who have received all of the light of the glory of God, who, who has dwelt in your presence in Jerusalem, you have been blessed, and yet you have turned against him, and you have received judgment for your sins. Now he is speaking to you of iniquities being pardoned, of, of warfare being ended. That's mercy. That's far more than anything else we could ask or imagine. I, I think that's what Isaiah is getting at there. Listen, whatever, whatever trial you're in, whatever suffering you are facing, whatever consequence is coming up against you for your sin, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you know this, you're guilty as a sinner, but he has pardoned you if you are trusting in Christ. The judgment is now that you have received the right standing of your Savior. You have the righteousness of Christ. There is pardon in Christ. And now the, the righteous judge himself, who, who rightly would turn his wrath toward our sin, now is saying, speak tenderly. The time of hardship is over. The iniquity is pardoned. I have more for you. Beautiful, beautiful words of comfort. Let, let's go on. Second way that, that we see comfort here. Verses 3 through 5, let me read. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. First reality is, for God's people in terms of bringing comfort is that there is no further judgment for our sin because our sin is paid for in our Savior, but that is possible because of this second reality. And the second reality is God himself has come to rescue. He didn't, he didn't just send. Now, I, I get when we talk about the Father sending the Son, but the Son is God in flesh, and so it is God himself who leaves the glories of heaven to come and to rescue his people. It is God himself, he's saying in this context, who ultimately rescues the people from out of Babylon. Here's the, go back to the people, the, the captives. Will God rescue us? We deserve to be here. And here is Isaiah saying, not only has he not forsaken you, he's coming for you. He himself is coming to rescue you. That's how, how incredible and how merciful and gracious this God is. And so prepare for his coming. God will come to rescue. You need to prepare. He's not talking here, um, you know, in terms of logistics of, of, of paving the way. He's talking in terms of spiritual preparation. God will come. There's, there's a twofold sense, obviously, to this prophecy in verses 3 through 5. The immediate sense that the people in captive in Babylon needed to hear, God will come for us. If you look at the map, Babylon is, is completely to the east of Jerusalem across the northern half of the Arabian desert. It's, so it was not a journey they could do, so it was about 800 miles to go up and around the desert. So it's a long distance, and the picture here is of, is of the glorious God coming through this desert highway to come and, and for his people and take his people to come and rescue them. Now, that's the, that's the immediate sense. The great fulfillment of this would really happen 700 years later. John the Baptist would tell us how this prophecy was fulfilled. In John 1.23, John the Baptizer says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, 
as the prophet Isaiah said. God's pardon of his people would be through Jesus, who's coming, John heralds, as being prophesied by Isaiah. He will come. Your Redeemer will come to you. So this is not, this is not saying, therefore, you need to go out and make roads and put stones down and, and, and flatten it all out. This is saying, so prepare your heart. This is what John says in Matthew 3. Again, John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What's he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, the glory of the Lord is coming. The, the great and holy God is coming to deliver his people. Repent, turn from your sin, long for his coming. Prepare your heart for the Savior. The light is about to dawn. There is, I, I think you could also say a third aspect to this, if you want to draw in the second coming of Christ, I think very much that's, that, that's the long view in this section of, of, of the Savior coming in glory. But, but what, what does start here, and you see it um, in, in verse uh, four, uh, verse five, I'm sorry, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One theme that you start to see here, we'll see it again down in verse nine, and then we'll see it start to unroll more and more throughout this last part of Isaiah is a missionary theme. This, is, this has largely been focused on Judah and God's work in Judah and what he begins to suggest here when he says all flesh will see it is this, this that is coming, this glory, this redemption is not for the Jews only. All flesh will see it and, and he will begin to develop that theme, this missionary theme that will thread its way through the rest of Isaiah. All right, verse six. A voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what he cries. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. First reality, take comfort. Your, your sins have been forgiven. There is no further judgment for sin. And in fact, the God who pardons, he is coming. He's coming in glory. He will actually come to rescue you. And, and the third comforting reality is that no one will stop him. No one will stop God. No one will thwart his word. No one will overturn his promises. This God is coming and none will stop him. Remember the first question of the captives is, will he come? Why would he come? Well, he will. He has not forsaken you. He is coming. So then the second question well could be, but, but can God save us? If Babylon took us in the first place, can he defeat their gods? Now, this, this theme is going to come back again and again. The strength, the, 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 the oneness of God, the, the power of God. He's, Isaiah is going to want to make it clear again and again that God is God alone and there is none like him. And, and, and he's beginning that here in this introductory prologue section when he says that, that this God comes and his word stands forever. And those who encounter him and who seek to oppose him he breathes on them and they are gone. They wither and they fade away. There, there's really two ways to, to, to explain this. One is first for the Jewish people who are punished and in exile. This is now a reminder that you are but grass. So when you 
under King Ahaz or under King, name the, the, the evil king. When you, when you disobeyed and you rebelled and you shook your fist and you said, we can do this and we're proud and we're strong and this is our nation, just understand in God's eyes, your flesh is but grass. And if God breathes on it, then it withers and it fades. It may be pretty for a while like those flowers, but only God's word stands. But the, the more important application of this for the people in captivity is that means the Babylonians are just men of flesh too. You feel like they've got you and, and they've conquered you. Know that they, all flesh is like grass. All are just human beings. And when God says, I will rescue you, the hardship is over and the iniquity has been pardoned, his word will stand. Andrew Davis again writes, we flourish for a brief time. Athletes win their gold medals. Scientists do their research. Young women perfect their beauty. Conquerors build their empires. But human splendor all withers and dies in an instant when the breath of the Lord blows on it. That's why our ultimate comfort for any circumstance can't be in things here. It can't we, we can't rest it solely in other people. We can't rest it in things. It's got to be in something eternal. So that God says, my word stands. And so that comfort must come from him. The God, the God who said, I will deliver my people, even if that means crushing a nation that looks powerful to you, it's but grass before me. And when I breathe on it, I will rescue you. That's why our comfort must be found in him. So no matter how painful or difficult your trial is, no one can stop God or undo his promises to you. When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, and that I'm working all things together for good, if you are trusting him, those promises stand because his word stands. Amen? Amen. Uh, verse 6, I, I pointed this out to you at the beginning, the comfort, comfort, sort of unclear to whom he's speaking remnant of, of people, but verse 6, it's very clear that Isaiah is, is receiving this because it says, I said, a voice said, cry, I said, what shall I cry? So here's Isaiah picking up this sort of missionary theme of, I'll speak. And so he, he speaks what he has commanded. Last section, verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Fourth and final comforting reality. The God who comes for his people to rescue his people and who will not be stopped is strong enough to guard you and tender enough to carry you. What a sweet picture that, that Isaiah gives at the end of this section. But he precedes it by saying, this is good news. This is shout it from the housetop sort of good news. This is proclaim this good news. Announce this to others. Go up high on a mountain and lift up your voice loudly and proclaim that God is mighty and he is able to save. And in fact, then he uses this description of the arm of God to give his strength first. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. So there's the picture on the one hand of this arm that will not be stopped by any other enemy, that is greater than any other power, that is greater than Satan himself, 
that is, that is the one who will prevail against all. His arm is strong. And then he says, when he does come, like this mighty warrior, he will then pick up his people. He will pick you up and carry you tenderly like a lamb in his arms. His, his arms, strong and mighty, are the same ones that pick you up and hold you. And it is such a glorious picture if you are trusting in Christ, this, this is us, of we who are redeemed, being rescued by our mighty Savior who defeats sin and death, who goes to the cross and takes our sin and takes the punishment and then rises victorious and defeats sin and death and crushes its power, who is mighty to save, and then who is this gentle shepherd who picks us up and takes us in his arms and holds us to himself and carries him. And, and, and to make the picture even more fascinating, if you will, verse 10, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. I, I, I believe that what Isaiah is saying at that point is that, that those lambs in his arms that he has rescued with great might in defeating sin and death and now taken as his own, those lambs are his reward. That is the spoils of the warrior's victory. Isn't that astounding that you and I Sinners as we are, knowing our own hearts, that, that the Redeemer would take us and hold us and would hold us as his lambs and say, this is my reward. This is my treasure. This is that for which I have extended my arm. Listen, I, I, I said to you at the beginning, this is about speaking words of comfort. Don't know what kind of week you got ahead of you. Some of you already have like trial on the calendar for this week. Hardship, you, you know it. You know that meeting that's coming and you know it's difficult. And, and I can't speak for you, I can speak for myself. My temptation in those moments is to look for distraction, is to, to think about what would make me feel better, or just think about stuff around me that I like, think about some kind of sports thing or something that distracts me. And what Isaiah is saying is, Look at God. Look at your rescuer. Look at the glorious one who is coming for you because there is no more judgment for your sin. There is a Savior who is mighty in whatever circumstance you're in, and he is tender, and he will carry you. I, I, I believe what Isaiah is urging us here at the beginning of 40 and what he will do for the rest of the book of Isaiah is continue to put before us this grand great view of God, the thing that, the, the, the one that Isaiah saw back in chapter 6 when he sees the majesty of God on his throne, what he's trying for us is to say, in the midst of your worst circumstance, see this one who has pardoned your sin, who's coming to rescue you, who's tender like a shepherd and mighty like a warrior. See him and trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming to us. We, we, we could not ascend to heaven. We could not commend ourselves to you. We, we see need when we see our lives. People, we needed you to come to us, to reveal yourself to us, for you to come, for Jesus to come, and to give himself for us. We need your spirit to be present with us, to speak again the, these words of comfort from the scriptures to our hearts. Thank you. 
Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for being this mighty warrior. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, those who are trusting in Christ. Lord, for you know what, what this week holds. I pray for some who are going to experience a valley, some sort of hardship this week. I pray that you would, you would help them hear Isaiah crying out and saying, he's coming Lord, the the Lord who saved you has pardoned your iniquity and he's coming again for you and your hope is in him. See him in his majesty and his glory because he is good. And if he has promised that he will work all things together for good, then help us to hear Isaiah saying, and his word stands forever. When we hear the promise that, that our Savior Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, help us to hear Isaiah saying, and his word stands forever. He will never leave you or forsake you. Father, if there's anyone listening online or in here who is not fully trusting in Jesus Christ as God in flesh, as the the one who did come, for whom the way was prepared, as the one who came and died on the cross to bear the price for sin and rose again to defeat sin and death, Lord, would today be the day that you would open their eyes and draw them to yourself to trust fully in Jesus Christ and in the forgiveness of sin that only he can give. Lord, we as your people are about to lift up our voices in song. Help us to to take the exhortation of your word and to cry aloud as those who have seen your goodness and tasted of your glory. Might we proclaim that. Might we join with Isaiah and not be able to keep our mouths shut about who you are and all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.